Hello and welcome to Front Page Radio with your host, international author, broadcaster, and journalist Dan Wooding, the founder of Assist Ministries and the Assist News Service. Dan, who was born in Nigeria of British missionary parents, was raised in England and later worked for some of Great Britain's largest newspapers. He has been a journalist covering the world for some 47 years now with a focus on persecuted Christians and missions. And now, here's Dan Wooding with today's guest. Welcome to today's program, and once again, I'm speaking to you from North Wales in the United Kingdom. The sun is shining, (laughs) something we haven't seen much of lately here. It's been raining a lot, but I'm with a dear friend who has an extraordinary story. His name is Christopher Lee Power, and uh, if that rings a bell, Christopher Lee We've added the power to it, but Christopher, thank you so much for being on the program. Oh, it's a privilege, Dan. And you're right, it's great to have this weather, because over the last few months we've had nothing but rain, certainly in Port Sunlight Village. (laughs) Well, I want you to learn a little bit more about uh, Christopher. We have one thing in common, and that is both of us have had a screenplay written about our lives. Mine is going to be called 26 Lead Soldiers, which was a quote from Karl Marx. Give me 26 Lead Soldiers and I'll conquer the world. It was the, the power of words to transform history. And yours is called... Free to be, which is a pun on Shakespeare's to be, um, because it's all about me coming from a rebellious background into being an actor. And part of my acting life was doing Shakespeare. So yes, free to be. That's the pun. (laughs) (laughs) Now, let's go back to your story. Now, my mum and dad, Christopher, were born in Liverpool, although I was born in Nigeria in West Africa, but um, they uh, went over to the mission field in uh, Nigeria back in the late 1930s. But you were born on the other side of the River Mersey in, is is it Birkenhead? That's right, Birkenhead. Birkenhead next to the old Priory, which um, has something called the Monk's Tunnel because it's believed that the monks would travel over the River Mersey. It's a very popular uh, area, and we have Birkenhead Park. Now, the thing about Birkenhead Park, if I'm right, uh, historically someone came over from New York and loved the design of Birkenhead Park and then took it back and created Central Park. Um, I grew up in Rock Ferry, which is part of... Conway Street and Birkenhead. Um, Conway Street isn't that far from Rock Ferry. But yes, you're right. We lived on top of a taxi place called Abacus Taxis. And I had my mum, my dad, and we had uh, Suzanne, Carl and Nicola. And we all lived on one floor. We only had two bedrooms. So the four of us, the children, were in one room. My mum and dad were in the other. It was the kind of era where we, we didn't have much money. We would take a piece of bread and put it on a fork and hold it over the fire to toast. <laughs> yeah. And we didn't have butter, uh, so we'd use something like lard or dripping. Uh, so we were very poor in those days. And my mum and dad were, were wonderful. They wanted to survive. We had a toilet which was on the outside, so you had to come downstairs, go out into the yard. And we never had a bath, so it was a, a, an old Belfast sink which we used to bath in. <laughs> but the beginning of my life, Dan was that, sadly, my, my dad and his friend, who we called Uncle, came home one night, and my sister was looking after us, uh, and my mum was at a friend's house. And for whatever reason, 
an argument had broken out with some rival people and they'd come to the house to talk to my dad and his friend. One of them had a shotgun, the other one had a knife. Sadly, we um, we lost Uncle Ronnie. He was stabbed, murdered, and my dad was stabbed but survived. And it was horrific for us as a household. And Rock Ferry had heard about this. The good news is, is that the people that did that were caught and justice was done and they were sent to prison. And they are still alive today and they live in a certain part of the world. It wasn't long after that, Dan, that I was diagnosed with hyperactivity, speech problems, lack of coordination, and I was sent to a special hospital. I was there because I had to take uh, speech therapy. But it was there that they put me in a restraint jacket uh, because I would lash out. And my dad wasn't happy with this and my mum wasn't happy. So my dad came and rescued me with a Stanley knife, (laughs) cut me free and took me home. Now, just going backwards... My dad, again, was born in Liverpool and came over to Birkenhead, but the powers were quite well known. My grandma was born in Dublin and lived in Dublin, came over to Liverpool, but my dad had already spent 18 years in and out of prisons, approved schools and board stores for petty things. So he had that kind of life, and I think for him, he didn't want me going down that road uh, as I got older, uh, but I rebelled. By the time I got to my teenage years, I was kind of, I was wanting attention. I had a desire within me to be accepted. And I think when you're at school and you can't spell and you can't communicate and you realise that the teacher's not taking any notice of you and you want them to take notice, you, you feel bad. And I did, and I did lash out. And I put my hands up and say it was a difficult time. And I feel sad because when I look back, I realise how important education is. And now, today, when I talk to young people, I tell them to try their best to stick at education because you'll need it in life. But I was naive. I used to think I was invincible. So, yes, school for me was very difficult. And in the 80s, things were changing. Fashion was changing. Music was changing. We'd come from the disco era to ska music, madness and the specials. And as that kind of evolved so did we as young people and we started to be influenced by the pop culture by wearing the same clothing the same hairstyles and just walking around singing the songs that we heard on television we didn't have a lot of music channels as you know we had top of the pops in those days which was (laughs) quite quite popular but one of the things i want to talk about is during my kind of youth years i'd come back from Liverpool after visiting my uncle. And when I got home, I noticed that the the glass in the door was broken. And I, I, I started to panic. And my cousin, who is from Liverpool, was staying with my family at that time. We'd swapped over for a, a few days. And I ran away. She grabbed hold of me. And what it was, my my dad, during the previous night, had drank too much. And the police were doing a routine check on all the houses. I love my dad, and the problem with my dad is after he's had a a bit to drink, he does change his personality, and he becomes very angry. And when the police knocked at the door, he wasn't having any of it, and he grabbed a plastic shotgun, put it through the letterbox, and told them to move. So the police were called, and they called the armed response, and everyone was kind of panicking. They smashed the door down, arrested my dad, and that within me caused me to become angry against anyone in authority. 
the police, teachers, security guards. So I was quite an angry person. So now you can see that already at school I was rebelling because my education suffered. I was hyperactive. I couldn't spell. And I was frustrated because I wanted support and help. And I think teachers misunderstood me. And then there was the anger issue where I started to rebel against anyone in authority. By the time I got to 11 and 12, the young people I associated with who went to school with me realized that around Birkenhead, other groups were starting to form. Like gangs. You like mean. gangs. Yeah. But they started to walk around and call themselves a name. At that time, we had films out like The Warriors, The Wanderers. <laughs> we had Scum. You had Quadrophenia. All about gang culture. Gang culture. And so we decided, well, we need to protect our territory. So we didn't just wake up in the morning and say, we're going to become a gang. We were already a group of loyal people. We went to school together. We, we went to the park. We played games. We watched videos. But we just wanted to protect our territory. So we had these uh, green jackets and on the back, we put the words Vickers, <laughs> which is ironic. Uh, and so, yes, we did go to the park and we did have the odd fight. We weren't the kind of gangs that you would see today in, in, in our youth culture uh, and gang culture. And I don't condone what we did. I th I'm looking back and thinking that was wrong. But you know, Dan, as a journalist, that what we see today in urban areas is... is it, just horrific with the knife crime, the gun crime. And, you know, they're looking for role models, but the only role models they come across sometimes, sadly, are people who have flash cars, want to sell drugs and walk around kind of with uh, good clothing. And then they feel, well, that's the way of life. And it's mm. not. And did, didn't you go through a period of uh, sniffing glue? I did, because during that period of time, and this is interesting because the group of people I associated with, they had this set of rules and it was or policy no drugs allowed and they had a, a huge list of things we didn't do which I, I, I abided by for a period of time but there was something in me I was curious of you know people who sniffed glue or people who took drugs and one day I saw these young people going into a derelict house I followed them and they were sniffing and I decided well what does that do I'm going to have a go. And I did. And I started to get involved in that and became addicted to it. But the th problem was I was oblivious to the dangers of glue sniffing. And I thought I was invincible. Wouldn't that affect your lungs? It, it absolutely did. But I didn't know that. You are oblivious to, rightly so, the dangers physically, mentally, but also what happens to the people who love you. And they started to keep their distance because I became an angry person. I became someone that would lash out and if someone said the wrong thing to me, I would say something back. And I think that's the problem with drugs. It changes your personality. And sadly, we just don't realize until someone points that out. It wasn't long before I became anemic. I started to self-harm. And to feed that addiction, as well as that, I was gambling and drinking heavily I turned to petty crime. And remember, this is in the late 70s and early 80s. So how else could I feed the addiction except by getting money? And the only way to get money in those days for me, because I wasn't working, I was still at school, was to steal. And I went out and stole and fed the addiction. And sadly, I remember one 
night I'd come out of a underage disco. That just means that if you're under 18, you can go to a disco. But I had a drink and I came out with my friends and I was walking down the street singing and shouting, enjoying <laughs> myself. And two special constables came up and said, you need to be quiet and move on. It just so happens that I had my dad's shoes on. Oh. And I was concerned that if I didn't get home, my dad would punish me. So the choice was, do I stop for the two police officers? Or do I go home where I know that um, you know, if, if I don't, my dad's going to keep me in and punish me? So I chose to go home. But what happened, I was walking fast and they grabbed hold of me, threw me against a sign post and I retaliated. I was drunk. I was foolish. And because of that, I got sent to a Young Offenders Institute, which is called the Short Sharp Shock. You know, it taught me a lesson. It taught me discipline. I came out. Did it deprive me from the things I did? No, because I fell back into the trap of taking drugs again back in the early 80s, drinking heavily. And as you can see, I'm showing my arm to Dan. Um, I have slashes, which are the scars of self-harming. Uh, and then sadly, I, I got involved in petty crime again and got sent to an adult prison. It was in that adult prison that I looked at myself. I evaluated the situation. I had all these cuts. I was anemic again, lost a lot of weight. I was horrible. And the only thing I could do was cry out to God. And that's what I did. I was due back in court a few days later. Thank God when I went to court, they bailed me rather than send me back. And then I decided, well, I need to go to a local church. And it was in that local church that I became a Christian. What an amazing story. And, and to go from that then into acting, how on earth did you go from the streets of, uh, you know, Birkenhead to, was it the, the Rada? Yeah, what happened, and it's, I'll keep this brief, is that my family, even, even though I was rebellious, and even though my dad did the things he did, as they got older, they matured. They decided that they wanted to explore entertainment. So my mum became a, a country and western singer, and my dad was a compere. So together they would go around pubs and clubs. They had a drummer and a keyboard player, and they would get up, introduce other acts, and they would sing themselves. And I was part of that. Uh, and although I was rebelling, I did go out and I did join my mum and dad. So the whole acting bug or entertainment bug was within me anyway. And I said to God, what do I do with my life? I had a very northern accent. And I said, I'd like to be an actor. <laughs> so I went to a performing arts school, just a basic foundation. And it was there I met a, a character. Uh, I say character. He was a lovely friend called Ron, but he was uh, quite eccentric. <laughs> and we started to talk. He befriended me. He loved Shakespeare. And he was learning his lines for A Midsummer Night's Dream. He said, will you help? And as soon as I started reading those lines out, I said to myself, this is wonderful. I love the Shakespearean language. I want to do this professionally. So that's where we started. For years, we uh, went around art, ga art galleries. We went to museums. We talked about the classics. We watched all the great films, biblical films. We watched films uh, about Richard Burton, uh, Laurence Olivier. Uh, he taught me how to speak properly. He refined my speaking voice, uh, the vowel sounds, the consonants. He taught me life skills. And then slowly but surely, I started to change. I realized from a Christian perspective, I started to have a newfound love and respect for people in authority. 
that's important. I started to enjoy my family. I started to befriend young people. And I started to befriend the very people that I hated, like teachers, lawyers, security guards, and the police, which is ironic. And then every drama school I auditioned for said no. And I felt like giving up. But then something within me said, go for it. And I prayed about it. And I met someone called Ernest Hopner, who's passed away now. And he spent some time with me. And thank God, after that occasion, I went and I got into Richmond Drama School. And I was awarded uh, an Oxford Diploma in Acting. I then went to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, RADA. And I also studied at Lee Strasberg, which is the Method School. And that gave me kind of uh, a great experience within the teaching methods in Russia, in America, and also in England. And I've been working ever since as an actor. I started off doing the soaps, doing small roles. Then I went into theatre and got the chorus parts. Then I graduated to speaking roles. And then I graduated again to leading roles. And now I've had the opportunity to do great films. I'm on Amazon Prime at the moment in a film called For Love's Sake, which won three awards. I've travelled with award-winning theatre companies. And that brings us up to date with uh, Free to Be, my my book, which, yes, uh, we have a screenplay now, which is brilliant. Uh, we have a great producer. We have a director. And we're just looking at some funding. And once that comes in, we will move into production. So at the moment, presently, we are promoting the film and getting it out there and looking at ways of funding the production. But sadly, two years ago, something terrible happened when you, I was sitting in a house. You had your own drama. Here you are, you're doing other people's dramas. And then take us back to what happened. It was the 25th of March 2017. I was sitting at home. It was a Saturday night. It was nine o'clock. My wife was out. I'm married now. And I have a wonderful son who was 16 at the time. And he was doing uh, a play at his school. And suddenly, quarter past nine, huge explosion. My windows came in. I ran for my life. I started panicking, praying to God, what can I do? I phoned people. What was the problem? People are thinking now, listening to this. Well, I thought it was a car bomb, but when I ran outside across the car park, I saw lots of people gathering and pointing. I ran to the top, and what it was is that someone had gone into the shop, they'd left the gas on for uh, an insurance claim, uh -huh. and they blew up their shop, but not knowing the huge impact it had upon the other shops. So during that night, lots of shops were damaged, lots of homes including a dance studio, which a few hours before had so many young people dancing and performing. And that dance studio was on top of the furniture shop. And they just about managed, I would say, to not be there at the time. Well, they weren't there, but it was a few hours before. And they, they got out, uh, meaning they'd left and closed up. But if they were there doing their performance a few hours later... Who knows what would have happened. So where was your wife at the time? My wife was with her sister, and she'd heard a bang quite a few miles away, and she just thought it was something in Rock Ferry, as you do. But it wasn't until later that night, because when I went back into the house, there was glass everywhere, the doors were blown off the hinges, there were cracks in the ceiling, and I was in my pyjamas. There <laughs> were bangs on the door, and someone said, get out. 
So I grabbed my phone, grabbed my coat, went out and collapsed on the floor after sheer exhaustion uh, next to a lamppost. All the police had come. They'd moved the people down and put a barrier up. And I just watched for hours as people ran up and down. The police came, the ambulance, fire brigade. It was sheer chaos. It was like a war zone. And then finally, down the road, I saw my wife and son coming towards me after hours of trying to track them down. And we just hugged. But it's been a two-year journey. uh, And it took two years for our house to be renovated. And we moved back in, I think, about six weeks ago. It was hard work, Dan. We had contractors come and go. Uh, it was an awful thing to go back every so often and see an empty shell. Sure. Can you explain? You lived in a rather extraordinary area called Port Sunlight. Yes, I can. If you imagine, uh, when you go to Cadbury's World, Cadbury's World is, is where they do the Cadbury's chocolate. They have a wonderful village there, uh, which was designed, to my knowledge, by... Uh, I don't know, the Quakers, but also it was designed for the workers. And Port Sunlight Village has the same kind of concept. The Lever, Lever Brothers, he had designed this village for the workers of Port Sunlight. And over the years, some of those houses were um, given to, to people, meaning we could buy them. So some of them are rented and some of them are purchased by owners like myself. So my wife and I bought ours about, uh, oh, it's coming up to 13 years ago now. They're lovely houses, but there's a uniqueness to the village because you have uh, a museum, you had a hospital, you had, uh, you have a theatre. The hospital is now being converted into a hotel. There's a pond, there, there was a swimming pool, and there was a few shops. But it's a lovely village, very famous because they make soap. <laughs> and they make other things as well. But it's it's been used for a lot of film sets. Recently, it's been used for Peaky Blinders, which oh, yeah. is uh, something about uh, gangs in Birmingham. Um, right, where I, was, <laughs> where I was raised. Well, it's wonderful that you're now back there and uh, this movie is going to be made of your life. Are you going to play yourself? No, I had a chat with the producers. And what I will do, I will be in the film... For me personally, I would like to play the tutor because I know uh, the tutor very well. I won't play myself. There has been suggestions of me playing my dad, but uh, that's up to the producers and the directors. The thing about playing yourself, it's just um, it, it doesn't it doesn't interest me at all. But certainly the other characters yeah. will. It was very interesting when I was uh, growing up. <clears throat> and worked in uh, the the secular newspaper business, I was criticized very heavily for working. Why don't you work just in a Christian organization? Have you had that same criticism? Why, why are you doing secular stuff? It's very simple. When I look at God and the Bible, God is our creator. And his creativity is in all of us. And we choose what to do with that. And I think when you look at the life of Christ, you can see he went into all the world, but he mixed with people from uh, all walks of life, people on the peripheral that we'd call the outcasts. And he wasn't afraid to do that. And I think for me, it's being salt and light. And it's going out there and mixing with people from all walks of life. Because how are we going to have an influence upon people who don't know Christ? Certainly in the media and the film industry. I'm not saying we should go there and impose our Christian faith. I do believe that we should be out there doing a good job. 
and being the best actor or the best journalist or the best dancer or director you can be, by doing that, you'll have much more of an impact upon this industry. Because if we spend our time boycotting films or boycotting the theatre like the, the Puritans did, then that's sad. Because for me, locking yourself away in the subcultures of Christian radio or Christian films or Christian, which is not a problem. I think that there is a, a need for that and that's not a problem at all. But I think we should also be out there working and having an impact upon, uh, upon the industry, mainstream industry. It makes sense. That's how we can be salt and light. What does salt do? Salt preserves and salt adds taste. And as human beings who are Christians, we need to be out there adding taste. It's important. Final question. How did you get the name Christopher Lee Power? Because I remember there was a horror actor called Christopher Lee. So how did you get the name Christopher Lee Power? My mum and dad have already, they were great fans of the, uh, you know, the movie industry. And they've been fans of actors who have sadly died now, uh, Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. And so when I was born, my dad decided to call me Christopher Lee Power after the actor that played Dracula. The problem was, when I became a professional actor, I went to equity and Christopher Lee was still alive. And I said, can I have my name and use it? And they said, no, because <laughs> we have Christopher Lee. I said, oh, right. So for a period of time, I had to be called Christopher Eaton, E-T-O-N, after the famous school uh, the only problem was, and my wife made a valuable point, how are people going to know you if you don't use your real name? So what I did, I went back to Equity and I said, look, can we make an agreement? Let me have my full name, Christopher Lee Power, and do something with the Lee Power. And they agreed that if I put a dash between the Lee and the Power, I could use it on my Equity card. And that's what we did. Sadly, Christopher Lee's gone. So when people Google my name... Um, I come up a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, how wonderful to speak to Christopher Lee Power. We hope uh, that the movie will come out. Mine is at the moment with a Hollywood agent, so we're waiting to see what happens. Unfortunately, the screenplay is six hours long. Oh, I could so it, it may have to be a mini-series. But anyway, yes. Christopher Lee Power, thank you so much for being on the program. You're welcome. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Front Page Radio with international journalist Dan Wooding. If you would like a free subscription to the Assist News service, log on to www.assistnews.net. And if you would like to write to Dan, send an email to assistnews at aol.com. Tune in again for another edition of Front Page Radio on this same station. 